talking about his resurrection. He has seen the risen savior. So he's writing about his resurrection. And when he says the ruler of the kings of the earth, he's talking about his exaltation. Are we not excited to read this verse? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. See, everything has been covered. His passion and death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and he is a God. Now then he has a vision about uh, Jesus Christ. And we have seen that vision already. It contains rich symbolism. And much of it is derived from the book of Daniel. Uh, now, Christ is not only identified with one like a son of man, but also described with attributes belonging to the ancient of days. John is clearly affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. He has no doubt about it. And he is bringing the verses or the attributes that were ascribed to the ancient of days, and he is giving it to the Son of Man, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, who is, who was, and is to come. You know, I am the living one. You know, and I hold the keys of death and hates. So the deity of Jesus Christ uh, is very clear in the mind of John. Now, this is one sentence you should always keep in mind. The description does not mean what it says. It means what it means. The description does not mean what it says. It means what it means. Uh, we have already seen that uh, we should try to understand what it means. In all the visions, we should try to see what it means. This is what we have in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the exalted Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, has been shown to us without any doubt. And now he's going to start the next chapter as far as we are concerned. That is the letter to the churches. So when we read this letter, it is coming from God. John is very clear in his mind. So we'll go to chapter two. Uh, in chapter two, we have letters to churches. Both chapters two and three, they contain letters to seven churches. Now, in chapter one, we saw Christ in heaven. That was a heavenly vision in chapter one. Uh, heavenly Christ, uh, or Christ, the exalted Christ in heaven. And that was the vision in chapter one. But when we come to chapters two and three, John is no longer is in heaven. He's talking uh, to the churches on earth. So now the scene shifts from heaven to the earth because all these churches are real churches in real, located in real places. And John is addressing these churches. So now what we have in chapter two and three is basically we are moved from heaven to the earth. Now, these are the seven churches we have seen. Uh, John is addressing his letters to the Roman province of Asia. The seven churches are listed on the map. Uh, they're located in the western part of Asia Minor. And by the end of the first century, because we have already seen the dating of the letter, it is after 90, this letter must have been written. So by the end of the first century, there were many more churches not only the seven churches, there were many more churches because when we read the book of Acts, when we see Paul's missionary journeys 
and when we read his epistles, we can clearly make out there were several other churches besides the seven churches. Now, why John chose the seven churches we saw, maybe, maybe he was very familiar with these seven churches. He could have visited these churches. He knew these churches. He was familiar with these churches. Uh, that could be one reason. On the other hand, we have seen that seven has got a special significance. The very number seven, uh, it shows it is complete. It is all inclusive. So John, by identifying this, just the seven churches, uh, he wishes to suggest that the messages are intended for all churches, wherever they are located. These messages are not only for the seven churches, it is addressed, it is relevant to all other churches. Uh, that, 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 uh, that is uh, a reasonable explanation. Now, the messages to the seven churches have been traditionally called letters. We also, we, we, uh, the chapter has been titled as Letters to Churches. But uh, there is no evidence, uh, or at least in the manuscript, they have not come across any evidence to suggest that these letters, they exist independently. Though we call them as letters, these letters do not exist independently. In other, other words, uh, in other words, they were all part of the document, the book of Revelation. It is never seen as a separate letters. So the book itself is applicable to all the churches. It is not only that small portion of the letter that is applicable to them. It is the entire book that's applicable. In other words, this book is applicable to all of us. It is not one particular passage or letter. Now, we should also keep in mind as we study um, these letters, uh, in the ancient days, people were very proud of their culture and cities. Uh, we have also seen that people will fight, one village will fight against the another village just to defend the name of their village. That's the, that's the kind of feelings that were existing those days. So the city's culture and traditions were more important than uh, knowing the truth. That was the prevalent culture at that time. That exists even today in many parts. They would rather defend their traditions and culture than in knowing the truth. Now, if we read all these seven letters, there are some common features. So we'll first identify the common features that are there in all these seven letters before we go to the first letter. Uh, you, we find a kind of uniform pattern that is seen in all the seven letters. The first uh, thing is an identification of the heavenly Christ. Every time he begins the letter, or every time the letter begins, there is an identification of the heavenly Christ. And John will use one or the other uh, various features of the heavenly vision. You know, we, he has already had a vision of the heavenly Christ, and he will take one feature of that to identify Christ. Uh, let me give you an example so this becomes very clear. Just from one letter, I'll give you an example, but it is uh, present in all the seven letters. First thing, he identifies the heavenly Christ. Uh, let's see Revelation 2.1. Now, John is, not, John is not writing this letter saying that Jesus Christ is telling this. So how John introduces this, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
Now, we have already seen this in chapter 1, verse 20. So, when we read this verse, we clearly know who is that? Who is saying this? And who is holding the seven stars in his right hand? And who is walking among the seven golden lampstands? And we have already seen the meaning of this is God's continuing presence with, uh, with the church and his care and concern for his people. That's why he is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the second uh, characteristic that we see in the seven letters is the message is directed to the angel. It is the angel of the particular church that is mentioned. Now, we have, we have already, um, we had a discussion about the stars, uh, how the four major interpretations about the stars. Now, in this particular context, uh, angel could refer, uh, angel could refer to the local church leader, and angel could also refer to the spiritual guardian angel of that church. But uh, when we see the usage of this word angel or the consistent use of this word angel in the rest of the book, uh, it is more likely that it refers to the spiritual guardian angel of the church. Uh, that's what the, that we can say by seeing that the meaning of this word angel or the way that's been described in the rest of the book. So the message is directed to the angel. And the third um, thing that we see in all the seven letters is I know, I know. Uh, I don't know whether it is comforting or with, whether it is threatening when we come across the word I know. You know, Jesus Christ is telling, I know everything that's happening in your church. I know good things and bad things that are happening in your church. Christ is telling that I know. You know, we have already seen that he has um, uh, flaming fire coming out of his eyes. So we saw that, you know, his eyes can just make out all hypocrisies in human beings. So when Christ says, I know, Christ is telling, I know everything, every single detail that's going on in your church. I also know the difficulties that you are in. I also know the struggles that you have. I also know the challenges that you have. It is comforting as well as it is uh, it's quite threatening too. Now, because Christ knows everything, we find there is a commendation for faithfulness. If a church has been faithful, or if the people have been faithful, God commends that, he appreciates that, he acknowledges that. So there is a commendation for faithfulness. And there is, there is also, because he knows everything, there is condemnation for laziness and unfaithfulness. There is condemnation for slackness and unfaithfulness. Slackness is being negligent, lazy, that is slackness. God doesn't want his believers to be lazy, negligent of kingdom work. So there is condemnation for slackness and unfaithfulness. Now, the length of the letter differs. It is not the same. Uh, for each church, for some church it's long, and for some church it is short. But every letter ends with an appeal to hold fast and to listen to what the Spirit is saying. Every letter has this, an appeal. You know, Christ is telling, please hold fast. Please pay attention to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Be careful to listen to what the Spirit is saying. And then after that comes a promise. The promise is, ye church is promised that everyone who conquers 
will be rewarded by Christ. There is a reward provided you conquer. In other words, Jesus Christ is clearly saying that, um, you know, when we come across the word conquer, it is basically a military term. You battle, you fight, and then you overcome. So he says Christian life is not an easy life. There is a battle. You fight, you engage in the battle, and then you overcome. You become victorious. When you become victorious, I will be waiting for you with a reward. There is a reward for you. Anything you do for Christ will never go in vain. Any, whether it's a small thing, anything we do with the right attitude for Christ will never go in vain. However small it might be, however big it might be, whatever little we do in the kingdom of God is recognized, is taken into account. And Christ, there is a promise. That's a promise. And Christ promises that when you are victorious, you will be rewarded. In other words, don't think Christian life is a bed of roses. Um, it is, it is, there are struggles, there are trials, there are tribulations, um, there are failures. Christian life is like that. But if you persist in your faith, if you persist in following Christ, you will overcome, you will be victorious, and you will be rewarded by Christ. So these are the seven characters or seven characteristics that we see in all the letters. In each of the seven letters, we find all this. So now with, uh, with this as our background, we will go to the first letter uh, that is there in chapter two. So the first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. So that's what we find in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus, not because it's a special church, because we saw it is the closest place to Patmos. Uh, so that is the first church that comes in the order. So the first letter is addressed to Ephesus. Now, we have to understand the history of this place, Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a well-developed place. It's in modern Turkey. Uh, Ephesus is now a uh, devastated place. At that particular time, it was uh, a well-to-do place. You can see this, you can see the architecture, architecture in this place. So it was a highly developed place. So the first letter goes to Ephesus, and this place had a population of around 2,50,000 um, to 5 lakhs. That's, that's, uh, that's a rough estimate. So Ephesus had a population like that, 2,50,000. This place was rich. It was not only rich, it was cosmopolitan. Like we call our cities as a cosmopolitan cities. Uh, so this place was wealthy and cosmopolitan. Because, uh, because how it was wealthy? Because there was trade. They were able to do trade both by land and water. So the moment you say water, you can also uh, figure out people from other places or from other nations used to visit this place because ships used to come. There used to be trade. So people from other cultures or other region also used to come to this land. Uh, it was bustling with commercial life. There was commercial activity going on everywhere in the city. Now, besides all these um, economic factors, uh, this church, this place had a temple, the temple of Artemis. Now, 
the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you can imagine one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So how developed this place must have been. Now, the temple of Artemis is also known as the temple of Diana. Diana is the name of the Roman goddess and Artemis is the name of the Greek goddess. So in Bible, we have reference to the temple of Artemis. So we'll go with that. And this temple, why it was considered as one of the wonders, one of the seven wonders, you can see this temple. Um, we will come to this temple a little later. Now, this temple was infamous for its sorcery. You know, for witchcraft, for magic. It was, it was practiced in this temple. This place itself is known for sorcery. Ephesus was known for magic, witchcraft, and we also pray in the present day context. But uh, it's interesting to see how Paul was able to minister in a place like this. Now, why do we say that magic was prevalent? We go back to the book of Acts and try to figure out, because in Acts 19.19, it says, a number, this is in Ephesus, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls, scrolls together and burned them publicly when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, when we read the total came to 50,000 drachmas, uh, we just, or maybe 50,000 rupees. Uh, it's not 50,000 rupees. One drachma is paid to a labor for his one day's work. Only one drachma. It's our one silver coin. Uh, a labor gets for his full day's work. Now, 50,000 drachmas, uh, means that person has to work for 137 years without any break. No Sunday, no Saturday, no holiday. And if he works like that, he'll be able to collect 50,000 drachmas. So 50,000 was a huge amount. And that is the amount a number, only one particular group who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together. So it shows to what extent sorcery was prevalent in Ephesus. And we know that famous incident in Acts 19.35, the city clerk quieted the crowd because there was a riot and said, fellow Ephesians, uh, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? This is not only in Ephesus, even in several parts of the world, people have some belief system that this idol fell from heaven. Okay, so this is the faith they had that the image fell from heaven. So this, the temple of Artemis was well known. And this temple was quite famous in those days. Now, archaeological evidence shows that uh, Ephesus had a sizable Jewish population. Uh, initially, Christians were very comfortable and part of the Jewish population. But later on, when Jewish people went and complained against Christians, they had problem uh, living in that place. There were many things that were happening that we, uh, that we can read from the book of Acts. Now, when we come to the temple, uh, they say in the ancient coins, uh, the picture of this temple was depicted, the temple of 
Artemis. It was so famous. And they say the size of the temple was something like uh, 100,000 square feet. So it was a huge temple, 100,000 square feet. And they say the temple itself consisted of 100 columns. It is not only it consisted of 100 columns, uh, each column was a monolith. That means one piece, no patches, one piece of marble 55 feet in height. So this temple was known for its grandeur, for its splendor. If you're talking about architectural splendor, this temple was known for it. And uh, some of the uh, columns, uh, they, were, they were adorned by works by the Greek artists. So people from all parts of the Mediterranean were, you know, the tourists and devotees would come to this place to worship. So that was the culture that was prevalent at that time. Uh, you know, one of the philosophers said, no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality because that was so prevalent in that place. No one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. And in the midst of this, in this atmosphere, you know, sometimes we think that our situation is difficult, but imagine in this atmosphere or in this environment, uh, there was a faithful group of Christians. They were a minority, and they, but they were a faithful group of Christians. And it was to them that Christ addressed his first, the first of the seven letters to that small group that lived in the city of Ephesus. Now, if you go to the background of the church, this church was established in the 60s by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, he spent three years in Ephesus, and he's the one who established the church because Acts 20.31, he says uh, in his farewell speech, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. It is amazing that Apostle Paul could come to a place like this and establish a church. Uh, we talk about our difficult situations, but imagine how difficult it must have been for Paul to come and preach the gospel in this place. So he says, for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, because of his preaching, what happened? because this temple was known for, uh, because of the temple, there was so much of commercial activities. Now, when Paul started preaching, there was reduction in the sale of silver uh, souvenirs. So the moment uh, all the, you know, the, there, was, there was reduction in the sense it shows then how many people would have become Christians because they were able to feel that their sales have come down. So there was a uh, silversmith, uh, he named, named Demetrius. So he thought, oh, if we allow this faith to progress or to continue like this, if they expand like this, we will be left with no business. So what, what did he do? In Acts 19.27, Demetrius is giving a big lecture. And he's saying there is danger, not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. 
Now this is the lecture he is giving and follows. After this only comes the trial uh, against uh, Paul. That's the reason they started a riot. It's not that Paul was doing something illegal, but Paul was afraid Paul's teachings were affecting their trade. And so they started, they engineered a riot against him. And that's where the city clerk had to come and warn them, uh, which we read in uh, Acts chapter 19. Now to this church, the letter comes, the first letter. So Revelation 2.1 says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the words of him. The writer is not named. Though the writer is not named, the description is so clear that we all can make out who is writing this letter or whose words uh, are these. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the glorious Lord who is saying these words. The exalted Jesus Christ is writing this letter to the churches. I said the letters are applicable to those churches as well as to the churches that are there today. It is applicable to all the churches. So John is making it very clear that Jesus Christ is the author of the letters. All the seven letters, Jesus Christ is the author of the letters. And he says there is direct word. It is the word from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is coming through the uh, Apostle John. And these are to these local congregations, to that small group of people in that place. And it is applicable to churches beyond that period. It is applicable to all the churches today. It is not only to the first century churches, but it is also to the churches of 21st century. Now, Paul had already warned about this church. When he established this church, he has warned about this church, what's going to happen, be careful. Because in Acts, because Paul actually wept. In Acts 20, 29 to 30, it says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Now, Paul was writing this letter in the sixties and John is writing this uh, letter in 90s. What has happened from 60s to 90s? Paul has already said false teachers will come, savage wolves will come, they will not spare you. And he said even from within your own community, you know, false men will come and distort the truth. So he has already forewarned and that's what has happened in 90s. Uh, now, in the 90s, basically you have second generation Christians. In the 60s, you had the first generation Christians. And in the 90s, you had the second generation Christians. And let's see what happened to the second generation Christians. What happened? In Revelation 2, 2, it says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. So this church is known for hard work and perseverance. 
this church had discernment to differentiate between good and bad. So here God um, commends them, appreciates them. The letter begins with an appreciation. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you, can, you cannot tolerate wicked people. And I also know you test the spirit and you don't tolerate when you find them to be false. So then the letter goes on in Revelation 2.3. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, if there is a church like this, you know, they were not spectators. They were all hardworking people, diligent. They were working for the kingdom of God. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. Now, if you have only these two verses, we will say, what a great thing. There's nothing like that. You know, if a church is like that, that's enough for us. So that's where the commendation, these people were known for their diligence. These people were known for their hard work. And hard work, and they endured hardships for what? Not for their comfort. They endured hardships for my name. Jesus Christ is telling them, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. We don't know what all struggles they underwent whether they lost their property, whether they lost their job, whether they lost their income, we, the details are not available. But one thing we know that they have suffered, uh, they have endured hardships for uh, the name of Jesus Christ. That's great, wonderful. But if, if the letter has stopped with this, it is great. But these words are followed by words of condemnation. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What has happened? Now when we read verses 2 and 3, and when we read verse 4, what could have happened that Christ is telling you have forsaken the love you had at first. Because in verse 3, we saw that you have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. In verse 2, we saw that you don't tolerate false teaching. So what could have happened in the second generation Christians? Now what has happened is they were very particular about maintaining their doctrinal purity. They didn't allow any false teachers. But their entire focus was, somehow we have to maintain the doctrinal purity. So we, our church stands for this. So we will fight for this. We will defend this doctrinal purity. That was their focus. But the original church that Paul established in the 60s, how was that church? In Ephesians uh, chapter 115, it says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all God's people. Now, Paul is appreciating them. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Now, sound doctrines are important, but maintaining sound doctrines without love is not appreciated. Sound doctrines alone are not enough. In the initial, in the, in the first generation Christians, they had love for all God's people. 
their faith in the Lord Jesus was appreciated, was acknowledged, was noticed. <clears throat> but now their, their fight for purity in doctrinal matters is noticed, but somehow they have forsaken the love you had at first. Now in this particular case, in this letter, we are not sure whether the writer is, uh, whether it refers to love for God or love for God's people. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Whether it refers to love for God or love for God's people, we don't know. Or whether it refers to both also, we don't know. Because the Bible expects us to love our God, neighbors at all times. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, what has happened in this church? They want to maintain doctrinal purity as a result of which they looked at everyone with an eye of suspicion. They didn't trust people. Uh, there was a kind of distrust among the believers. So as a result of which uh, there, was, there was lack of love in the community. Now, only holding on to the doctrinal orthodoxy is not enough. We should also practice what Christ has taught us. And it could be also that their love for God has become weak because in Jeremiah 2.2 it says, this is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. So God wants us to love him even through the wilderness. Even through a difficult journey, God expects us to love him. So in the process of weeding out, because they wanted to block all the false teachers, we should do it, but we should use a discretion. They did it in a mechanical way as a result of which they are being condemned. So we need to be careful while maintaining the uh, doctrinal purity we should be very careful how we maintain that. We should never forsake our love for God as well as for people. That's why Jesus said the very first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second commandment is love your neighbor as you love yourself. So no church can exist without practicing these two commands. Uh, these, are the, these are the important things that we need to keep in mind. Now, after uh, condemning them, in Revelation 2.5, it says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Just in a matter of 30 years, from 60 to 90, See the story of this church, the history of this church, to what extent they have fallen. Did they exist? Yes, they exist. Churches, they existed, but they, they were not pleasing to God. So God is telling, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Can you imagine? Jesus Christ is telling that I will remove this church from its place. Now, when it says, I'll come to you, Jesus, the, it is not referring to the second coming of Christ. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It is not referring to the um, second coming. It is referring to the local judgment. Very soon, this church will not exist. Uh, the church in Ephesus was destroyed. I think by 256 AD or somewhere, uh, there's no longer there is a church. Uh, the church was destroyed. So I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. We can have a structure, but do we have the approval of Christ in our church? And to have the approval of our church, of Christ, we should uh, have these two things, love for God and love for people then only we will have the approval of Christ. Uh, the presence of Christ departs when well-intentioned people 
zealous to find the right way. That means they're very eager. They were very keen to find the right way, depart from the ultimate way, which is love. The ultimate way is love. That's why Bible says God is love. When we um, move from that way, uh, the presence of Christ departs. We read in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departed. And uh, sometimes we feel that Christ will never leave our church. Uh, but this letter makes it very clear that when our love for God becomes weak, love for our neighbors become weak, Christ departs that church. So Christ basically is threatening them with a divine judgment. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't do that, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Revelation 2.6 says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we will see this word Nicolaitans when we come to the second letter, because Nicolaitans figures only in two places in the Bible. One is in 2.6 and another one is 2.15. So when we come to the second letter, I'll explain about the Nicolaitans. For the present being, this is in their favor because you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now the letter ends with an exhortation and a promise. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now it's not uh, in terms of just listening. It's talking about spiritual discernment. Do you have that insight? Do you have that discernment when you read the word of God? Do you read it as God's word? And do you listen to that? Do you obey the word of God? That's what uh, this means. And then there is a promise. <clears throat> it's not uh, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. <clears throat> from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 7 says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, if we read Genesis chapter three, verse 22, uh, the Lord God said, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now the tree of life was denied to Adam and Genesis 3.22. In Genesis 3.22 it says, he, Adam must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life, which had been denied to Adam is now made available to the one uh, who is victorious. Now, whoever obeys the message of the letter and overcomes in the conflict with evil, uh, he, to him will be given the tree of uh, life. Uh, with this, we finish the first letter. Uh, if you have any questions, you can ask. Can you just read that, Pastor Fred? Uh, to the angel of the churches, what does that mean? Somebody has uh, PJ. Who is that PJ? I don't know. Okay. The angels, uh, when we saw in chapter 1, 
uh, we spoke about stars and we said about the four major interpretations in this case seeing the context we said the angel could refer to an elder of the church that is one interpretation the other interpretation is the angel could refer to the guardian angel of the church so when we uh, look at the meaning of the word angel in the rest of the book uh, the second meaning applies more that means the guardian angel of the church any other questions no pastor okay let's pray father we thank you for helping us to sit and learn lord your probing eyes how it goes into the churches father the churches is not just an organization an establishment or building it makes it's made up of men and women with flesh and bones and life it's made of us made up of us oh god humans father we thank you it's so encouraging to know that in the midst of the ephesian lord if ephesus lord where there was so much of lord witchcraft black magic charms and uh, so much of rites father a church could spring up and could stand as a blessing lord master even though you want the church faded but it lord we thank you for giving us that hope that today in the midst of all the challenges we are facing father we can be a blessing one man paul with a vision with a burden with a sincere commitment lord it could go about establishing this beautiful wonderful church father we pray that you motivate each one of us to know that we through the local church where we are father we can be a blessing the gates of hell will not prevail against the church the demonic forces can never lord master touch us oh god lord you said because you made the lord who is my refuge thy habitation no evil will befall you know neither shall any plague come near your dwelling for you shall give his angels charge over thee to keep them all the ways thank you lord you will give your angels to keep our feet so that the next verse it says and you shall tread upon the lion and adder the young lion and the dragon you will trample under feet thank you that you have given that to the church of god and help us to always remember the first love father touch us help us to search our hearts every day every moment lord anything we think anything we do is it out of love for you or because of something else help us lord to stay in love and to be in love and to cherish your love and uh, lord and give back our love to you in the name of jesus we pray amen, amen. have a blessed week god bless you all